Okay, we'll get started. Um, welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Glazer. I'm the Associate Director of Foreign Policy Studies here. Welcome to the Hayek Auditorium today for what should be, I think, a very interesting discussion. Um, the leading issues of US foreign policy and international security more generally are filled with concerns about nuclear weapons. Just yesterday, I read in the paper um, about North Korea's uh, ballistic missile test with, of course, added to concerns about um, their progress in nuclear weapons development. I also read a New York Times article yesterday about um, America's nuclear umbrella in, in Europe uh, and whether that is still as credible as it used to be and so on. Uh, we've gone to war in the past, of course, with nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction as um, primary justifications. Um, and of course, we've heard a lot recently about Iran and the nuclear deal. Um, there's considerable debate, I think, in academia and in policy circles about the utility of nuclear weapons. Uh, some say just about all they're good for is self-defense. States that possess them can easily deter uh, attack or invasion. Others argue that possessing nuclear weapons uh, also gives states added leverage to get their own way in international politics. Um, in this conception, nuclear weapons add to the ability to coerce others. Not only can they deter actions that we don't like, but they can um, compel states to take, take actions that we do like. Today's discussion centers on this debate and a new and important book, Nuclear Weapons and Coercive Diplomacy, uh, uh, sort of evaluates the empirical record and historical record to test whether or not nuclear weapons aid in coercive diplomacy. Uh, the authors of this highly recommended book are here today. Todd S. Sexer is Associate Professor of Politics at the University of Virginia. Um, and Matthew Furman is Associate Director of Political Science at Texas A&M University. He's also an Andrew Carnegie Fellow. Matthew Kranig, to my right, tends to have a different view than the ones uh, in the book, and he'll offer his comments uh, after the presentation. Uh, he's Associate uh, professor in the Department of Government and School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University and senior, senior fellow in the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security at the Atlantic Council. Uh, I just learned that all three of our guests today were Stanton Nuclear Security Fellows at the Council on Foreign Relations, um, so they have that in common. Uh, I'm very pleased to have these distinguished guests here. Um, at Cato, and I'm very excited for this discussion. Um, for those in the audience or online, uh, if you want to follow along on Twitter or tweet about the event, the hashtag is CatoFP. Um, and the floor, I think, goes to Todd first. Take it away. Now, can you help me get these? Oh, that's beautiful. Terrific. Well, thank you, John. Uh, thanks to everybody for being here, and thank you uh, to the Cato Institute uh, for hosting us. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. My name is Todd Sexer. I'm from the University of Virginia. Uh, the United States is about to spend uh, more than a trillion dollars modernizing the US nuclear arsenal. Uh, three years ago, the Obama administration launched a massive program uh, which the Trump administration uh, appears, uh, at least, inclined to continue. Uh, that's designed as a comprehensive overhaul of the nation's nuclear weapons infrastructure. So over the next 25 to 30 years, uh, the program will upgrade our existing nuclear warheads, which are getting old. It will buy new delivery vehicles, uh, including new stealth bombers, new ballistic missile submarines, and a new nuclear-armed cruise missile. But before we spend, a trillion dollars buying better and more capable nuclear weapons, it's worth taking a step back and asking, what is all of that money going to buy us? Uh, as a nation, what do we get for having a more capable nuclear arsenal or for having a nuclear arsenal at all? Uh, and of course, the United States is not the only country to spend vast sums of money on nuclear weapons. A former prime minister of Pakistan once said his countrymen would eat grass if they had to in order to build the bomb. 
Uh, and there are others too, of course, India, China, North Korea, and other countries all realigned their national priorities to some extent in order to achieve their nuclear ambitions. And so the question is, what did they get in exchange for those sacrifices? So our motivation, uh, in part for writing this book, was the observation that we have, at best, partial answers to this question, and that our knowledge of the costs and the benefits of nuclear weapons is still incomplete. Uh, so one of our goals in writing this book uh, is to fill some of the gaps in our understanding uh, of the advantages that nuclear weapons confer in the game of international diplomacy. And we start from the view that in order to understand the kinds of advantages that nuclear nations are likely to have in the future, uh, we first need to know whether they've conferred advantages to those countries in the past. So in this book, we, pay, uh, we take a comprehensive look uh, at the historical record in order to get a handle on this question. Now, it's fairly clear to us that nuclear weapons have at least one important advantage. Uh, under the right conditions, at least, they're very good at deterring aggression. Uh, during the Cold War and still today, uh, deterrence was considered the primary mission of the US nuclear arsenal, uh, preventing adversaries from encroaching on our interests by threatening nuclear escalation. But deterring aggression is only one half of that equation. It's also possible that nuclear weapons could help the United States or other countries uh, commit aggression, uh, not just prevent it. Uh, it could be the case that countries that have nuclear weapons are better able to coerce adversaries into giving up territory, changing their foreign policy, uh, deposing leaders, or, or making other kinds of concessions uh, by threatening nuclear attack. Uh, so in other words, nuclear weapons might be useful instruments of coercion. Uh, and in fact, the view that nuclear weapons are useful for coercion has a very long pedigree uh, in the United States. From the earliest days of the nuclear age, uh, we find American leaders who believe this, believe that having nuclear weapons uh, gave them the ability to push around adversaries. So Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower, for example, uh, believe that nuclear weapons helped the United States uh, coerce the Soviet Union and China into making concessions uh, during a variety of crises during the 1940s and, and 1950s. Eisenhower believed that atomic threats that he had made against China were ultimately responsible for bringing them to the nego negotiating table and ending the Korean War. Now, on the flip side, we also see this claim being tossed around uh, in more contemporary debates about the dangers of nuclear proliferation. Some observers have warned us that if Iran were allowed to acquire nuclear weapons, it would try to redraw the map of the Middle East, take over oil fields, push the United States out of the region, uh, and make other kinds of demands uh, of its neighbors. So it's not that we would see more war or conflict, per se. It's that we would see Iran's neighbors submitting to its will for fear of nuclear punishment. And that's really the essence of coercion, getting your adversary to back down without a fight. A successful coercive threat is one that never has to be carried out at all. Now, these claims are emblematic of what we call in the book, we call the coercionist school of nuclear politics, coercionist school. Uh, and this school of thought argues that countries that have nuclear weapons are better able to get their way in international diplomacy. Uh, their coercive threats, their demands are more effective when they make them. And indeed, countries that have nuclear weapons may not even need to make threats in order to get what they want. Uh, their adversaries will simply make concessions preemptively uh, and back down before a crisis ever occurs because they don't want to take the risk of being the target of nuclear punishment. This is a view that I think has become widely adopted today in government circles, the defense community, and also by academics who study nuclear security. And it's worth reiterating that this is a much more assertive way of thinking about the role of nuclear weapons than what we're accustomed to. Uh, what this school of thought is saying is that nuclear weapons are useful not just for deterring aggression and protecting one's homeland, uh, but also for engaging in aggression. So nuclear weapons, in other words, according to this view, are useful for coercion, for revising the status quo. The logic of this argument is compelling, it's simple, it's elegant, Straightforward, there's just one problem. It's not true. Uh, in this book, uh, Dr. Furman and I take a comprehensive look 
at coercive diplomacy in the nuclear age. And what we found uh, actually surprised both of us. When we looked at the historical record, we found very little evidence that nuclear weapons have been successfully used in a coercive role, uh, even though countries have tried many times to do it. And indeed, we found that non-nuclear powers are just as successful at coercive diplomacy as nuclear powers. So here's the basic problem. One thing we know about coercive diplomacy is that it works better under one of two conditions. Number one, coercion works best when the coercer has the ability to impose its will by military force. So for example, when the United States demanded in 1994 uh, that Haiti's military junta step down from power uh, and reinstate the country's democratically elected president, uh, that's a classic case of coercive diplomacy. A coercive demand made by the United States backed by the threat of military force. Uh, and in that case, it worked, in part because Haiti's leaders knew that they'd be forcibly deposed by the American military if they refused, and there was really nothing they could do to stop it. So in cases like this, military capabilities are crucial because the coercer can convince the target that it's going to lose anyway. And so it would be better to just give the coercer what it wants and, and avoid a bloody conflict. So that's one condition for successful coercive diplomacy. But sometimes coercive diplomacy is not about issues that can simply be taken by military force. The United States could, for example, demand that China inflate its currency against the dollar in order to make US manufacturers more competitive, uh, an issue that the, our current president cares a great deal about. Uh, this isn't something that the United States can just take by force. Uh, we'd have to convince Chinese leaders to do this themselves. And so the way to make coercion work in this case would be to threaten to inflict some kind of pain uh, on the target until it complies. So if the coercer can make a credible threat to inflict punishment, then, then the target can't stop it, uh, then coercion is more likely to work. So we have these two ways, these two mechanisms uh, by which coercive diplomacy can be effective. But the problem is that nuclear weapons actually are not very useful at creating either of these conditions. Uh, number one, nuclear weapons are not especially good for taking objects like territory. Uh, taking territory requires defeating sometimes widely dis dispersed conventional forces, possibly defeating insurgents, protecting civilians, uh, and holding the territory with troops on the ground. If anything, using nuclear weapons in these kinds of settings could actually be counterproductive. Now, what nuclear weapons are very good at is inflicting large amounts of pain. Nuclear weapons uh, are, are achieve this mission very well, but the problem here is credibility. Uh, and here is where the distinction between deterrence, which I talked about earlier, and coercion comes into play and becomes really critical. When the issue is self-defense, when you're using nuclear weapons for deterrence, uh, it's not that hard to make an advers adversary believe that you'll retaliate to protect your homeland, especially if your survival is at stake. Uh, but coercion is different. Coercion is not about survival, it's about aggression. So just by nature, the issues at stake in coercive diplomacy uh, for the country making the threat are likely to be less important. Uh, this isn't to say that the issues aren't important, that the countries involved don't care about them. They, they care deeply but we're not talking about a country's survival being on the line here, and that's a key distinction. And moreover, the international political consequences of using a nuclear weapon to commit aggression against a neighbor uh, would be tremendous. So the costs of being the aggressor are higher, uh, and the benefits are lower. So what this means is that nuclear threats are not likely to be very credible uh, in cases of coercive diplomacy, and we can see this when we take a look at the historical record, uh, one of the things that we do in the book is we take a bird's eye view of patterns in coercive diplomacy episodes across time. Uh, we used a database of more than 200 uh, coercive threats made by all kinds of different countries throughout the nuclear age, uh, not just from the United States, but also from other nuclear powers uh, like the Soviet Union, Russia, China, uh, and threats from non-nuclear powers uh, during that period as well. And we can ask a very basic question, which is when nuclear countries make coercive threats, how often do those threats succeed? How often do the targets comply with those demands? Uh, and how often 
uh, do they refuse? Uh, if the coercionist school is correct, then the top bar uh, here should be longer. But in fact, we see uh, really the opposite being the case, uh, that nuclear armed countries don't make more effective coercive threats. In fact, uh, across this time period, uh, their success rate is slightly less. Now, it could be the case that countries don't get a coercive advantage just from having nuclear weapons uh, at all, but instead from having more or better nuclear weapons than their opponent. And this is another argument uh, that's commonly made in the literature on nuclear security and one that, that some people have used uh, as a reason to oppose further nuclear arms cuts in, in the United States. But again, even when we change the analysis here, the result is basically the same. Uh, now, this is just a small piece of the evidence uh, that we present in the book, but I think what this analysis shows uh, is that nuclear weapons don't seem to play a big role in coercive diplomacy. Uh, the problem of credibility is just too big to overcome. Uh, and that's a theme that Dr. Furman will elaborate on. I'm Matt Furman from Texas A&M University, and I just want to also thank Cato for putting this great event together. It's a real pleasure to be here. So as Dr. Sexer articulated, a key claim in our book is that nuclear weapons are not very helpful for coercive diplomacy. And the big reason why this is the case is that credibility problems reign supreme when it comes to nuclear coercion. That means, in the case of coercive diplomacy, it's very difficult to make a nuclear threat credible. The targets of such demands are unlikely to believe that they would actually suffer a nuclear attack if they refuse to heed the demands of the coercer. However, many scholars have argued for decades, going back to the work of Thomas Schelling, that countries can turn seemingly unbelievable threats into credible ones by engaging in something called brinkmanship. Brinkmanship is the deliberate use of certain behaviors, certain actions that raise the risk of something going terribly wrong. In short, that raise the risk of some kind of mutual disaster or accident. To illustrate what brinkmanship means, in his famous book, Arms and Influence, Thomas Schelling asks us to imagine two mountain climbers who are tethered together. One of them might try and coerce the other by saying, do as I say, or I'm going to jump. Well, the target of that threat might rightfully conclude that the demand's not very believable because if the mountain climber jumps, both of them will plunge to their death. So the threat is dismissed as incredible because it's suicidal. What the threatener could do instead, though, to try and turn what's obviously a not believable threat into one that's credible is to edge ever so slightly towards the brink of the cliff. Maybe there's some loose gravel underneath his footing. Maybe there's a big gust of wind that's starting to come in. And now all of a sudden, even if the target of the threat knows that rationally the coercer would not jump, the target might nonetheless fear that he might slip and fall. And therefore, the result would be mutual disaster. To avoid this outcome, the target of the threat might capitulate. That is, they might heed the demand. Not because they think that the coercer would rationally carry out something that's suicidal, but rather that they worry about some unintended accident might occur, and that this accident would lead to catastrophic consequences. This logic has been applied to international crises as well. When countries interact with one another, they may do things like the mountain climbers on the cliff. In the case of nuclear coercion, a coercer might, for example, alert its strategic nuclear forces. A nuclear alert would raise the possibility, however unlikely it might be, that nuclear weapons would be used in an unauthorized fashion. So nuclear alerts are, are kind of a textbook example of brinkmanship in the context of an international crisis. And according to brinkmanship theory, when we see nuclear alerts, when we see escalatory actions taken by a nuclear power that raise the possibility of accidental nuclear launch, we should see that state and that leader be more likely to have his or her demands met. 
In our book, however, we argue that this view of brinkmanship is wrong. It's wrong both on logical grounds and on empirical grounds. Let me highlight two key uh, logical limitations of brinkmanship theory that are part of our view of nuclear weapons, which Dr. Sexer and I call nuclear skepticism theory. First, one problem with brinkmanship theory is that in order for it to work, leaders have to take dangerous actions that increase the risk of unauthorized nuclear use. They have to be willing to lessen control of events and raise the possibility that things might spiral out of control. However, we know from psychology that individuals, especially type A types, which world leaders tend to be, would much rather uh, have control over events rather than cede it. So the very thing that makes brinkmanship potentially effective, that is, it's really dangerous, also makes leaders reluctant to use the tactic in the first place. Now, of course, sometimes leaders, nonetheless, do resort to brinkmanship. But this brings us to a second logical problem with the theory, which is that in order to engage in brinkmanship effectively, you need to communicate a message, if you're the coercer, to the target state. You need to tell the target state, change your behavior in the following way, and if you don't, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be a price to pay. If you're alerting nuclear forces, you might be signaling, for example, that the target might suffer a nuclear attack unless they heed your demands. The issue, though, is that in international relations, signals are garbled all the time. Messages are not communicated effectively, and especially in a crisis, there's a lot of uncertainty and miscommunication that occurs. So things that seem clear and obvious to the coercer are, in fact, not so obvious at all to the target. I'll give you two illustrations of this that come from nuclear crises that we examine in the book. The first comes from the Berlin crisis in 1958-1959, when Nikita Khrushchev was attempting to expel Western forces from the city of Berlin by raising the possibility of nuclear war if the United States and its allies refused to move out of West Berlin. To make this demand credible, during the crisis in 1959, Khrushchev moved nuclear missiles into East Germany. This was significant because for the first time, it gave the Soviets the ability to hit targets in Britain and other US allies in Western Europe. Because their long-range missile capabilities at that time were not yet fully developed, that was a capability that they lacked short of forward deploying nuclear forces. So the missile deployment that Khrushchev engaged in is exactly the kind of brinkmanship behavior that deterrence theorists write about and suggest should be effective as a coercive tactic because it raises the possibility, not only does it signal a potential willingness to use nuclear weapons, it also raises the possibility that something could go awry. The interesting thing, though, is that we now know from declassified documents that the United States missed this signal. They did not know at the time that the Soviets had, in fact, moved nuclear missiles into East Germany. It wasn't until after the Berlin crisis ended, later in 1959, that Eisenhower received word that the missiles had, in fact, been deployed. Obviously, if Khrushchev's goal was to coerce the U US by moving missiles into East Germany, it's a big problem if the United States doesn't detect that deployment. The deployment, then, could not have influenced US behavior in that crisis. A second example comes from the Vietnam War. During the presidential campaign in 1968, President Nixon promised to bring a swift end to the conflict of Vietnam. When he came into power in 1969, one of the things he did to, end, to attempt to end the war in Vietnam on terms favorable to the United States is to order a alert. He put all strategic, or at least some, of the US strategic nuclear forces on alert. And he did this to send a message to the Soviet Union. And the message was this. You need to bring the North Vietnamese to the negotiating table so we can end this war on terms favorable to the United States. And if you don't, there's a possibility that things are going to escalate out of control, possibly to the nuclear level. This threat failed. 
And it failed because while the intention of Nixon might have been obvious to himself, it certainly was not obvious to the Soviet Union. In fact, the Soviets had no idea that the nuclear alert had anything to do with Vietnam. They failed to, to make a connection at all between anything going on in Vietnam and what the, the nuclear alert was trying to accomplish. And so not surprisingly then, the attempt at brinkmanship in this case failed. So our theory expects two things about brinkmanship. First, it should be a tactic that's employed relatively infrequently. And second, it should be a tool that has limited, although not, not zero, but limited utility in coercive diplomacy. To put this argument to the test, we analyzed all cases based on uh, known information of nuclear brinkmanship since 1945. We identified 19 cases where a country attempted to alter the status quo, that is, make a coercive demand, and to support that demand, used some form of nuclear brinkmanship. Often this comes in the form of nuclear alerts, but it could also be forward deploying nuclear forces, pre-delegating launch authority to local commanders during a crisis, making verbal nuclear threats backed by conspicuous military maneuvers. All of these things count as nuclear brinkmanship. What brinkmanship theory leads us to expect is that those types of threats should effectively coerce the opponent. And we find that this is not the case. Of the 19 cases that we examine in the book, nine of them clearly support our perspective of nuclear skepticism. In these nine cases, a coercer made a demand and then raised the possibility of nuclear escalation by engaging in brinkmanship, and yet the target still did not cave in these cases. For example, in 1999, during the Cargill War, Pakistan uh, sent various nuclear signals to, to India in an attempt to wrest uh, portions of Kashmir away from India. And in the end, this, these maneuvers were unsuccessful. And after the conflict, Pakistan controlled no more of Kashmir than it did prior to the conflict. And we see, the, see similar dynamics in the other eight cases that I alluded to. The other 10 cases, though, are apparently contradictory for our theory. And they're apparently contradictory because these are instances where a country makes a coercive demand, uses brinkmanship, and then gets its way. So it seemingly, apply, seemingly implies, on the surface at least, that nuclear coercion works. However, a careful examination of the historical record suggests that, in fact, none of these cases provide unambiguous evidence in favor of the view that nuclear brinkmanship works. I want to highlight uh, one of these cases to illustrate the, the nuance that's involved in examining coercive diplomacy with nuclear weapons. And we'd be happy to come back to others in the question and answer period if people are interested. The case I want to talk about now is the 1973 Yom Kippur War, fought between Israel and its Arab adversaries. During the conflict, the Nixon administration was concerned that the Soviet Union was going to intervene in support of the Arab states. And in fact, Egyptian leaders at the time were openly calling on the Soviet Union to do just that. The United States believed that this would uh, be highly destabilizing and, and, and wanted to oppose it. And so to send a signal to the Soviet Union not to intervene, and also send a signal to Egypt to say, stop asking for Soviet support, the Nixon administration alerted US nuclear forces. You would think that this would have a huge impact on the behavior of the Arab nations and also the behavior of the Soviet Union given what nuclear brinkmanship theory has to say. However, when we look closely at what actually transpired, we see yet another case of, of a botched nuclear signal. The Soviets did detect the nuclear alert, but they were not sure how to interpret it. They did not react with fear and intimidation, as brinkmanship theory expects. They reacted with bafflement. Soviet leader Lenoid Brezhnev said, quote, Nixon's too nervous. Let's cool him down. That was his response. His response was not to quiver with fear. 
His response was to be dismissive of the threat, despite Nixon, Nixon's attempt to engage in nuclear brinkmanship. So this case, like many others we look at, while seemingly supporting the view that nuclear brinkmanship works, upon close examination, actually lends support to our view of nuclear brinkmanship and nuclear coercion. So in sum, nuclear weapons, uh, according to our book, are not very useful for coercive diplomacy. And even when countries try really hard to make their threats believable by using brinkmanship, the track record is still quite checkered. This conclusion, we think, has several important policy implications. I want to close by talking about one of those implications for policy. While we still don't know much about what nuclear policy might look like under President Trump, there have been some hints that he's embracing the view that unpredictability brings bargaining leverage in international relations. That is, if you can come off as unpredictable, you can keep your adversaries guessing, they're more likely to, to bend to your, your wishes. This gets very close to the basic idea of brinkmanship. That is, you can keep your opponents off guard by raising the possibility of something going horribly wrong, leading to further concessions. What our book suggests is that if President Trump is hoping, or if he believes, that he will be able to use the US nuclear arsenal to get better bargains in international relations, that he's likely to be sorely disappointed. Well, uh, good afternoon. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you to the Cato Institute for hosting this important event. Uh, pleasure to be here with Professor Sexer and Professor Furman. Uh, as Mr. Glazer, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, seasonal allergies uh, came a little early for me this year with the warm weather recently. Uh, as, as Mr. Glazer pointed out, um, the three of us were all Stanton Nuclear Security Fellows at the Council on Foreign Relations, but unfortunately, those were during uh, different years, so we didn't get to hang out. But 2007, 2008, we were all postdocs together at Harvard. We had the chance to debate these issues. Uh, uh, over the course of that year, and I suspect we'll be continuing to discuss and debate these issues, I hope, for the rest of my uh, career. Uh, so Professor Sexer and Professor Furman are among the leading international relations scholars of their generation. Uh, and as you would expect from leading scholars, uh, this is a serious book. Uh, the book asks a serious question, a clear question. Uh, do nuclear weapons provide countries an advantage in international course of diplomacy? Uh, it has a clear answer. Uh, they argue that, on balance, it does not, uh, that the problems with credibility, the problems of credibly threatening nuclear use, are just too high, and so therefore it doesn't provide countries with meaningful uh, course of advantage. Uh, they don't only just examine their preferred explanation. However, they look at alternative explanations. Uh, you know, what are the other reasons to believe that nuclear weapons might matter? matter? They systematically examine those. Uh, and then they gather systematic evidence, both quantitative evidence, two uh, chapters devoted to quantitative analysis, uh, multiple chapters devoted to case studies, as they pointed out, looking at all of the, the cases uh, they've identified of when nuclear weapons have been invoked uh, in these coercive situations. Um, and then they conclude that they find support uh, for their argument. And this obviously has important implications for international politics. Uh, so it's an important book, and I, I recommend it uh, to you. And I got my copy signed uh, earlier today in, in the green room. Um, so I, I think for the rest of my time, I want to um, do, do a couple things. One, uh, raise a couple of, of points of criticism uh, in what is overall a, a great book. And then uh, second, maybe talk about some of the policy implications of this argument as I see it, uh, and then wrap up. So um, one possible uh, criticism uh, that others have raised as well is that the argument rests a lot on this distinction between compellence and deterrence. Uh, so Sexer and Furman argue that nuclear weapons don't matter for compellence, you know, military threats designed to force an adversary to take some action. Uh, but they hold out the possibility, it's not their focus, but they hold out the possibility that nuclear weapons do matter for deterrence. Um, and you know, it, by definition, that seems to make sense that, that forcing an adversary to do something is more difficult than forcing an adversary not to do something. 
uh, that deterrence is easier than compellence. Um, so in theory, that makes sense. As some have pointed out, though, often in practice, uh, that distinction is blurred. Uh, so let's take the Cuban Missile Crisis, maybe the most important case of nuclear diplomacy in history. You know, was this, case, was this a case of deterrence? Uh, the United States was defending the pre-crisis status quo, deterring the Soviet Union from placing these missiles in Cuba? Or was this a case of compellence? Uh, was this a case of the United States trying to change the status quo by trying to force the Soviet Union to remove the missiles that had already begun to place in Cuba? Um, it seems like you could argue it either way. And so uh, if whether nuclear weapons matter or not depends on these arguable definitions of where one marks the status quo and is it deterrence or is it compellence, uh, then that raises uh, some issues. Our colleague Frank Gavin, who now teaches down the street at Johns Hopkins, has said, coding who is the compeller and who is the deterrer is often in the eye of the beholder. Uh, so it seems like it would be hard to argue that the, the fundamental nature of international politics and international coercion uh, depends on where you draw the status quo, whether you define something as deterrence or compellence. And so it seems like that may lead uh, the authors then to have to argue that nuclear weapons don't matter at all, either for deterrence uh, or compellence. Um, it seems like it might be hard to uh, uphold this distinction, but I'd be interested in their response to that. Uh, the second issue I would raise is, is the issue, an issue that political scientists worry about, uh, so-called selection effects. Uh, so to give um, you know, just one example from everyday life, let's say LeBron James has a shooting percentage of about 50%. I think that's probably about right. Uh, and let's also say that um, the worst player on the Cleveland Cavaliers um, has only played a few minutes at the end of a, a blowout game, but took two shots and, and made one. Uh, they would both have a, a shooting percentage of 50%, but clearly LeBron James is the much more effective player. He's taken a lot more shots, uh, scored a lot more points. Uh, I think there may be um, something similar going on in, in some of the tests uh, in this book. Uh, I think uh, the professors are absolutely right that if you look um, at the data, the success rates of nuclear armed states when they issue threats are not statistically different from the success rates of non-nuclear states when they issue threats. I, I think they're right about that. There's, there's not a major difference. But if you take a step back and ask the prior question, who is willing to make these threats and, and who is not, then I think you see that nuclear armed states are much more willing uh, to make these threats. Uh, and in fact, I have a book uh, coming out. I was inspired by, in part by their work, and so a chapter in my book looks at, at this question. And um, since 1945, uh, according to the data in the book, nuclear armed states have issued 49 threats. Um, all 49 of those were against countries with fewer nuclear weapons. Uh, never once has a nuclear armed country issued a compellent threat against a country with more nuclear weapons uh, which suggests to me that, that nuclear weapons do matter a lot uh, for coercion, uh, but they matter at this previous stage of do you make a threat or not, um, and then once you make the threat, the success rates are roughly um, equal. Uh, so I'd be interested in, in the uh, professor's responses to those questions. Uh, taking a step back and, and looking at some of the policy implications, I'll just make a, a few points. Um, you know, one is that um, political science is very good at looking at the relationship between a, a single independent variable and a single dependent variable. And that's what the authors do in this book uh, very well, looking at how nuclear weapons affect these coercive outcomes. Uh, often uh, in, in policy, however, policymakers have a much more difficult job. They have to think about how um, you know, policies affect all kinds of, of different interests. Uh, so when it comes to nuclear weapons, US policymakers need to think how nuclear weapons affect coercion and compellence, sure. Uh, but also deterrence, extended deterrence, assurance, uh, God forbid nuclear war fighting if, if a limited or, or large nuclear war breaks out. Uh, and so it is possible that nuclear weapons don't matter for coercion, but that they're still uh, an important part of the US arsenal for these other reasons of deterrence, extended deterrence, assurance, uh, et cetera. Um, cost was mentioned in the introduction, and nuclear weapons are expensive. Best estimates are, as, or at least some estimates, as Professor Sexer pointed out. Uh, $1 trillion over the next 30 years. Uh, so that's a, a big price tag. If, putting that in context, though, that comes to about 5% of the US defense budget. And so if you believe, as former Secretary of Defense Ash Carter does, that nuclear weapons are the, quote, the bedrock of our security, uh, then 5% seems like a bargain. And I think that seems like a bargain. Um, so uh, I think I'll wrap up with, by just saying that uh, this is an important book. Matt and Todd are, are serious scholars. And in fact, I think this is probably the best and most thorough book written on nuclear coercion 
probably since 1987, uh, probably since Richard Betts' uh, book, Nuclear Blackmail and Nuclear Balance, 30 years ago. Uh, so an important contribution to the literature. I recommend it to you. Uh, Matt and Todd, congratulations on major accomplishment, and look forward to the discussion. Thank you. So thank you to all our speakers. Uh, perhaps before turning it over to Q&A, uh, I should give you guys a chance to respond to some of these questions uh, on selection or, or, or the other ones. Sure. Yeah, let me just start by uh, thanking Dr. Craning for his very uh, kind and thoughtful remarks uh, on our book. As, as he alluded to, uh, for the last 10 years or so, we've had various uh, debates about not only nuclear weapons, but international relations more generally. And, and it's been a lot of fun, and I look forward to, con to continuing this. Let me, I think I'll respond to the second point, and then maybe uh, Dr. Sexer will have something to say about the distinction between deterrence and, and compellence. Um, I want to respond to the notion that maybe nuclear states get more in international relations because, they're, because they try more often, which could, which could be the case. Uh, what I would want to know, though, is I would want to, for someone to point to a con concrete case or, or a handful of concrete cases where they could demonstrate that nuclear weapons, in fact, gave a country coercive advantages. Dr. Sexer and I looked very hard uh, to find such a case and we did not have much success. There are a lot of ways in which countries could get their way in international relations. One way to get at this issue is to look at threats and when threats are successful. Dr. Sexer showed you a, a graphic illustrating some of our analysis looking at threats. But of course, threats may be unnecessary, as Dr. Kranig pointed out. We totally agree with that. And that's why in the book, we looked at all sorts of other contexts where countries could conceivably get their way without having to issue a formal threat. We looked, for example, at bargaining over disputed territory and whether countries are more likely to have territorial disputes settled in their favor when they acquire nuclear weapons in the middle of an ongoing territorial dispute. The nuclear coercionist view might, might suggest that, in fact, countries should get their way uh, under that condition. We found that not to be the case, though. We also looked qualitatively, doing historical analysis, at lots of case studies, some of which I alluded to in the presentation. And we were just unable to find much evidence at all suggesting that, threat or no threat, nuclear states were somehow getting their way more often. They may, in fact, try, try more, as Dr. Kranig uh, suggests. I don't necessarily dispute, dispute that. In general, nuclear states are powerful and powerful countries in international relations are more active. They're more likely to initiate military disputes, more likely to uh, make coercive demands. But the question is, the question uh, Dr. Sexer and I are really interested in is not so much do they try more, but do they actually succeed? And our book suggests that, that they do not at, at a better rate than, than non-nuclear states. Uh, let me uh, first echo uh, my thanks to Dr. Kranig uh, for his comments, not just today, but over many years that we've uh, engaged with him about this project. Uh, he's offered us great feedback that has made, I think, the, the book much better. Um, let me make one uh, related point uh, to what Dr. Furman was just talking about and then address this question of uh, deterrence versus coercion. Uh, Dr. Kranig used the, the metaphor of Le LeBron James uh, to sort of suggests that uh, nuclear states are still better off in coercive diplomacy because they make more coercive demands, more threats, and therefore, even if their success rate is lower, right, LeBron is scoring more points than the guy coming off the bench uh, in garbage time at the end of the game. Uh, so LeBron's the more valuable player. Uh, and that is certainly true in the, in the case of the basketball metaphor. But I think in uh, coercive diplomacy, the situation's a little bit different, and the main difference is that an unsuccessful shot, an unsuccessful attempt, can carry costs. Uh, one of the key reasons that China uh, decided to accelerate its nuclear program uh, in the 1950s was uh, the fact that it had been targeted several times by sometimes oblique, sometimes explicit nuclear threats from the United States. Uh, that played a big role. 
So those nuclear threats, the, those uses of atomic diplomacy carried an important cost uh, in the, the sense of uh, uh, undermining uh, barriers to proliferation, not just in, in China, but, but perhaps also around the world. Uh, so if uh, LeBron James, every time he misses a shot, uh, if one point is subtracted from his team's total, uh, then we're going to have a much different calculation uh, about a player that uh, takes a lot of shots and misses a lot, but also makes many. Uh, the, I think the, the picture is not quite so clear. Uh, and in international diplomacy, making unsuccessful coercive challenges uh, can be very costly. Uh, now, we do know that, that nuclear states do make more challenges, and, and oftentimes that's because uh, leaders are emboldened, especially in the early years after acquiring nuclear weapons, uh, to try to use their nuclear weapons for coercion. Uh, but they find very quickly that that, that isn't very effective. Uh, so let me address the, this uh, point that uh, Dr. Koenig made about deterrence and coercion. Are they really distinct? Uh, I, one of our motivations for writing this book was that we've got thousands and thousands of pages of scholarship and writing about nuclear deterrence, uh, but we actually have very little writing and, and scholarly thinking about nuclear coercion, and so we wanted to fill some of what we saw uh, were gaps in our understanding of the political effects of nuclear weapons. Um, but if those two things can't be distinguished, then the, the whole enterprise is suspect. Uh, but I think they can be distinguished. I think there is fundamentally a difference between uh, a demand that says, don't invade my allies, don't invade my territory, uh, and a demand that says, you need to change your leader, you need to give me a disputed piece of territory, uh, you need to make a policy change or, or some other concession. Uh, now, there are some cases where the distinction does get blurry. Uh, but the, the, there's a difference between what countries consider to be the legitimate status quo and what is the actual status quo. Uh, so Pakistan, for example, uh, to this day claims Kashmir as part, uh, rightfully part of its territory. Uh, that does not mean that Kashmir is actually part of its territory. It just means that that's how Pakistan sees the situation. Uh, but in fact, in reality, Kashmir belongs to India and is controlled by India. Uh, and so we would say that is the, in, indeed the territorial status quo, uh, even if that status quo is recognized as illegitimate. Um, so I, I think we would agree that in some cases the distinction is blurry, uh, but I think that that concern is actually overstated. In most cases, it's much clearer than, uh, than some scholars, I, I think, have led us to believe. Excellent. Okay, so we have some time for uh, questions. A few ground rules. Please wait to be called on. Please wait for the microphone so that everyone in the room and in the audience online can hear you. Um, announce your name and affiliation if you have one. Um, and the Jeopardy rule prevails here at Cato. Ask your question in the form of a question. Uh, do not make a speech. Um, sure, just down here. A wonderful talk on a subject that I've rarely have heard presentations about. Uh, one country you don't mention in the table is Israel. Now, Israel is the, while never officially acknowledging that it has nuclear weapons, everyone knows it, it does, but its neighbors do not cower before it. It's the victim of, uh, you know, a guerrilla attacks, and it's, surely if it could have attained strategic advantage by coercion, it would have attempted it, but it, it apparently is either has not attempted it, or if it has attempted it, has not succeeded in cowering any of its neighbors. And also, India's nuclear wet, um, arsenal is vastly bigger than Pakistan's, but this has not stopped Pakistan from en en engaging officially or turning a blind eye toward terrorist actions inside India itself. Do you want to take it? Feel free. OK. Uh, I, I agree uh, with your assessment that uh, and, and again, this sort of strikes at the heart of this distinction between deterrence and coercion. Uh, one thing that I think nuclear weapons have been very useful for uh, for the Israelis is deterrence uh, and preventing large-scale conventional attacks against the Israeli homeland. That, that I think, as a mission, that has succeeded. Uh, but in terms of coercion, I, I think you're right. I think there haven't been uh, tremendous benefits 
uh, for Israel. Uh, imagine the costs of, for Israel of making an explicit nuclear threat or even an oblique nuclear threat uh, or, or, God forbid, using nuclear weapons to achieve a coercive objective that's something other than simply stopping an invasion on, on the Israeli homeland. Uh, the political cost would be very high. Uh, and, and for that reason, I think that's sort of argument about a fundamental credibility problem, uh, that a threat like that would be too costly to execute and, and therefore not believable. I don't know if you have anything to add on that. Maybe I'll just add real quick that uh, the, the main case that has received a lot of uh, attention involving Israel is, has to do with actions during the 1973 war when there was a lot of discussion about Israel perhaps mating nuclear warheads to missiles to send a signal primarily to the United States to induce the United States to provide support during that crisis. This is one of the cases that we took a close look at in the book, and we found that the evidence didn't really support the view that uh, if Israel, in fact, did what a lot of people suspect they did with respect to its nuclear arsenal, there's very little evidence to suggest that it was effective in coercing the United States to uh, resupply Israel through an airlift, which it ultimately did, but uh, the evidence suggests that it wasn't because of, of Israel's nuclear brinkmanship, it was because of other factors. Gentleman down here in the front. Thank you, I'm Benjamin Kuhl, a retired foreign service officer. I have a request for a clarification and the question, uh, Dr. Sexer, uh, did I understand that you said that Israel's nuclear arsenal has deterred the Arab states from in, uh, launching uh, large-scale conventional forces? Uh, it seems to me that it's really Israel's conventional forces that have done that. Uh, would you agree? Yeah, I think in, in that case you have an overdetermined outcome, uh, and, and it's hard to separate what's really doing the work. Um, but I think that's a case that sort of bolsters our view that if nuclear weapons are useful for anything, it's going to be deterrence and not so much for coercion. Now, whether it's the, their nuclear capabilities are conventional, uh, both could be having the same effect. And, and in the book, we don't, we don't take you know, that question on, uh, so we, we don't te try to tease them apart, but it could be either. Uh, my question concerns on some remarks that you especially have made, uh, which suggests uh, that there's a kind of backfiring effect of attempts to uh, use nuclear weapons as coercive uh, tools, uh, and that you sometimes get the opposite result. Uh, and I'm thinking of Iran and North Korea, which uh, have both been threatened, uh, Iran by Israel particularly, but the, uh, North Korea, uh, you know, and what it's done is it's incentivized North Korea to uh, develop its nuclear program and continue doing it. And, and, and it's gotten some results in the sense that we are now... Uh, Quickly with the question, please. Well, that, that is the question. Uh, do you agree that there's a backfiring effect? And I was just giving a, a little bit of background. That is that North Korea has made some gains that we're now willing to talk about possible uh, peace treaty over some period of time. Uh, and uh, with Israel uh, and Iran, uh, Iran actually, uh, by continuing to escalate, eventually got a, uh, an agreement that it could, could have some uh, enrichment program at a certain level, something that it would not have had, uh, you know, perhaps minus these uh, threats of Israel to attack uh, uh, Iran. Yeah, I think the problem of of threats that backfire is very significant. Uh, they do have long-term consequences that can be negative for the coercing state. And again, this feeds into this problem of credibility. 
Uh, it's credible to believe that a country would use nuclear weapons to protect its homeland. It's much less believable that it would do so and endure those long-term consequences uh, for uh, something that it doesn't already have. This gentleman with the glasses back there. Hi, uh, Tad Daly's my name. I'm with uh, an NGO, Citizens for Global Solutions. Um, I want to ask you to speculate about something prospectively rather than uh, retrospectively. Um, the efficacy of possible nuclear weapon possession in a post-nuclear world. There is a long-standing debate, of course, about abolition, uh, whether it is a desirable thing uh, to be pursued. And the single greatest objection to abolition is always what's called the breakout scenario. We would have universal nuclear disarmament, but some state would manage to squirrel away a dozen and then cue the heavy organ music here. They would whip back the curtain and proceed to rule the world. That seems virtually an exact analogy. That is nuclear coercion, a nuclear armed nation saying to another state or states that don't have nuclear arms, you must do X or we will launch our nuclear arsenal. Your research seems to me a pretty uh, significant refutation, rep refutation to that hypothetical future scenario. What do you think? Go ahead. I would say that in an attempt to answer this, we would look for some way through history to adjudicate that argument. And what I would think of immediately would be to look at the, the one period in history when there was in fact a nuclear monopoly and that was from 1945 until the Soviet detonation of its first nuclear device in 1949. So we have four years' worth of history where we could look at, and we could see, all right, there was a nuclear monopoly, only one state had nuclear weapons, the United States. What did it get that it couldn't have got otherwise? Leaving aside the, the end of the Pacific War for a moment, I think you could argue that the United States got very little uh, coercive leverage, at least, from its nuclear arsenal during that period. Now, the concern would be, you could say that the United States at that time, because it was uh, reestablishing the post-World War II world order, perhaps was a status quo seeking power. What if instead a country with a nuclear monopoly was highly revisionist and highly resolved to, to, stay, to change the status quo? Status quo? things might play out differently in that scenario. We can't know, of course, because we can't rerun history and make the United States revisionist. But I think there's good reasons, both on logical grounds and historical ones, to, at the very least, strongly question the notion that a country could successfully blackmail and bully other states, even with a nuclear monopoly. Did you have any? No. Okay, I think we have time for one more. Uh, there's a gentleman over here in the corner. Uh, thank you, uh, um, Pat Span, just myself. I'm actually old enough in the 60s, I sat through a seminar with Herman Kahn, which I understand is the um, um, role model for Dr. Strangelove. But my question is, you know, with all the proliferation going on, you know, as it continues on, um, is there, do you, any of you believe there's a likelihood that nuclear weapons will again be seen as just another military weapon like it was in the early 50s, and like obviously uh, Truman thought so in World War II, it was just another weapon. And I, I don't know whether it's Hollywood or whatever, that end of the world type scenarios that made nuclear weapons, you know, something other than just another weapon. So, but do you, do you, with the proliferation coming, um, do you see, you know, the, the end of the world type scenario uh, eroding and the willingness to use nukes? You want to take that? Sure. Happy question. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a great question. And there's concern that uh, the smaller we build nuclear weapons and the more usable they become, uh, the greater the likelihood that they will actually be used in conflict and then the lower the barriers in, in the future to using them. Uh, and that's possible. Uh, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what attitudes about nuclear weapons will be in the future. Uh, I do think that certainly in the 1940s and 50s uh, that, at least in the United States, U.S. presidents, Truman, Eisenhower, 
Uh, they believed nuclear weapons were just another weapon, uh, but they felt constrained uh, by public opinion, and that played a big role in their decision-making process. Eisenhower, and especially John Foster Dulles, uh, his Secretary of State, uh, found this appalling that the public saw this distinction between nuclear and conventional weapons, and they tried to combat it, but they failed. So what leaders believe and what leaders have the freedom to do might be two different things. Uh, so I think the role of the public in that story is, is a very important one. Okay, we are exactly out of time. Um, we are serving lunch. It'll be held on the second floor level in the George M. Yeager Conference Center up the spiral staircase right out here. Uh, restrooms are also on the second floor. On your way to lunch, uh, look for the yellow wall. Thank our guests, speakers, very much. Thank you.